Our master text this morning for this teaching that I'm doing, this third session in uh, Always Have an Answer, which is a training in evangelism, is 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 23 through 26. So if you have found that, uh, when you find it, stand up with me and let's honor the reading of God's word this morning. And um, I'll just give you a little bit of context here because I like verse 22 as well. And it says this, because this is, man, this is kind of a word from the Lord for a lot of us. Uh, Verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Praise God. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, as we proceed here this morning, I just want to make mention of the fact that the point of that reading is that we as Christ followers need to be able to navigate foolish and um, the text calls it stupid, uh, foolish and stupid arguments um, that are designed to take us off course of what's really important in our presentation of the gospel. And even when discussing the important matters of the gospel, which once again, as I've said in my previous two teachings, um, um, navigating everything back around to the centrality of the gospel, Christ crucified for our sins, raised on the third day, the only way to the Father, uh, the only way to be reconciled with the Father and forgiven of your sins is Christ crucified and your faith in him. That's the centrality of the gospel. Now, people will try to take you down all kinds of rabbit trails. That's true. And it's okay to address some of those rabbit trails, but always bring it back around to the centrality of the message of the gospel, Christ crucified. But even when addressing the rabbit trails and even when addressing the centrality of the gospel, obviously our master text tells us to do it in a spirit of love and gentleness, not not to be argumentative, but to do it in a spirit of love and gentleness. And I'll add with a degree of intelligence in intelligent dialogue as you're addressing people's objections and questions when you're speaking to them about the gospel. So I just want to talk to you um, uh, about this master text a little bit more in what I'm going to call Evangelism 101. This is, this is basic, entry-level evangelism, the points out of this master text. So let's go down the list here and make some observations about that master text. So first of all, non-believers are not the enemy. You were a non-believer at one point in your life. I was. Okay, so non-believers are not the enemy. They are captives of the enemy, which verse 26 makes reference to. They are captives of the enemy to do his will. And then the next point here is that we must not be quarrelsome. It mentions that in verse 24, but rather share our faith with, here we go, kindness, right? Knowledge, and that's referenced when it says, Uh, The servant of the Lord must be able to teach, okay? So we must have some knowledge. That's why it's so important to to read your Bible. And and look, I want to make an observation about that right there. I've heard some people tell me, and this is, I mean, seriously true. Some people have, have told me, and I've heard other pastors say this about people they've dealt with, that some people, here's their Bible reading. They'll open the Bible, they'll close their eyes, open their Bible, and then put their finger on a page, and then, and seriously, and they'll, they'll read a verse there, and that's their Bible reading for the day. Well, the, the, my concern about that is, is, is what if you open the Bible and you put your finger down on where it says of Judas uh, that um, he went out and hung himself? What if your finger plops down on that? Then you're like, okay, well, that didn't really do much for me. So you, you, you turn in, to another place, you plop your finger down, and it says, now go and do the same. Right, right. Is that, is that going to be your, your Bible reading? Is that, is, seriously, we need to have a way more intelligent approach to the Bible than that. Open the Bible. Look, if, if you want to just look at a verse 
and meditate on a verse, I think that's okay. But you really need to read the Bible in context. In context. Start at chapter one of a, of a book and read it all the way through. So you get the context of it. Because, it's, man, if you don't do that, you're, all kinds of wacky ideas can come out of lifting a verse out of context. And that's what a lot of the people you, you talk to will do. A lot of the opponents of, of the gospel, they think they know the Bible a little bit. They know enough to be dangerous. And they've lifted a verse out of context, completely wrenched out of the context of the verses around it. And they build a thought, theology around that. And they get completely wrong ideas about God, the Bible, and our faith. That's why it's so important you know the Bible in context. Read entire books, entire chapters, go all the way through chronologically. I think that's very important, okay? So don't be haphazard in your Bible reading. Be thoughtful. That's kind of a totally different message and teaching, but that's what a lot of the people that you're witnessing to actually have done in the past, they don't, they don't know the Bible in context. They know little bits and pieces of it, and they build little theologies around it, their own little mini-theology, and they come up with completely whacked-out ideas. Okay? So that's why it's so important for you to know the Bible. So we must present our, the, the gospel, present our faith with knowledge. In other words, able to teach, it tells us. Next here, willing to endure suffering for his or her testimony about Christ. The Bible tells us that those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And so when you start sharing your faith a lot, you're going to get opposition. When you start standing up for stuff, you're going to get opposition. That's part of it. Just be glad that you are not in ancient Rome right now where they burned Christians at the stakes. Just, you know what, if you get a little bit of verbal abuse, oh, poor little boy, little girl, right? It, we're not being burned at the stake, okay? <laughs> right? Yet, anyway, um, uh, there is some opposition out there that's pretty fierce, but, um, you know, we're not to the place where the early Christians were, and we're being fed to lions, and, and uh, you know, we're put out in the Colosseums and subjected to horrible deaths, okay? So a little bit of verbal opposition, yeah, yeah, we just need to grow up, okay? Um, Again, we need to be willing to endure a little bit of suffering for, for our testimonies about Christ because you will get opposition from time to time. And boy, isn't it worth getting opposition from 10 or 15 or 20 people for, to see one person come to Christ? Isn't that right? Amen. Amen. And then also be willing to correct opponents, but with gentleness. You need to be willing to be bold and to correct opponents of the gospel, people that have wacky ideas about, you know, the Bible and God and Jesus and Christianity, and, but correct them with gentleness and respect. Amen. So that's what our master text teaches us. Now, I want to begin talking about three other common objections to the Christian faith this morning. I've given you six already in the previous two teachings, and now I want to give you three more this morning. So how about this one right here? What about those who have never heard about Jesus or seen a Bible in remote parts of the world where maybe the gospel hasn't reached them yet? Well, such a question, uh, ladies and gentlemen, implies that God lacks compassion because he has supposedly imposed his plan of salvation on us. You know, such inquiries uh, actually imply that the one bringing up that objection or that question has more compassion than God does. I want to say that again. This question right here implies that the one asking the question or bringing up the objection has more compassion than God does, and I'm going to show you how to overcome that. So, firstly... And this is in your notes. An important biblical principle to understand is that no one has ever remained lost who wanted to be found. You can write that down. And there's a, a couple of scriptural references there for you on the screen and also in your notes in Matthew 7 and Acts 8. You can go read those later because it's very clear that no one who has ever wanted to be found has ever remained lost. Okay, the second point that we can make about this is that God has made himself known to everyone. Even if they haven't seen a Bible or heard about Jesus, God has made himself known to everyone. And uh, I'm going to give you a scriptural reference for that actually here in a minute. 
and, and, and by the way, before I get to that scriptural reference, I want to add this to the discussion on this point. What about those who have never heard about Jesus or seen a Bible? Well, look, if you want a compelling representation of the mercy and compassion of God, ladies and gentlemen, look at the cross. All you got to do is look at the cross, look what Jesus went through to pay the penalty for your sins and mine, and that's a beautiful representation of the love and the mercy and the compassion of God. So when somebody brings up this objection, circle it back around once again to the centrality of the gospel, Christ crucified and, and raised from the dead on the third day. It, the crucifixion of Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and mine, and that always needs to come out in your proclamation of the gospel. So that is a wonderful representation of the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God right there. But let me give you a little bit more of scriptural elaboration on this point here. What about those who have never heard about Jesus or seen a Bible? I'm going to read to you a passage from Romans 1. And it, it magnifies on the point that I made earlier that God has made himself known to everyone, even if they haven't seen a Bible or heard the name Jesus. Let's read together. The wrath of God... Yes, there is wrath to come. We talked about that last week. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Did you know that there's people today who are suppressing the truth or attempting to do so? Did you know that? And it says that God's wrath will be revealed to people who suppress the truth. Okay, verse 19. Since, here we go, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I happen to believe that there are certain people, groups in the world that have never seen a Bible or heard about Jesus, they know that there's a God. I, I believe that some of the, this is my opinion, I can't prove this, but I believe that some of the American Indians who'd never seen a Bible or heard about Jesus, they, they referred to the great spirit. I believe that some of them knew about God and knew the God they knew the now some of them were pagans. I understand that. I knew I know that some of the American Indians were hellish and cannibalistic and what have you, but there was some tribes, maybe the Cherokees were one of them, they were a very civilized American Indian group who talked about the great spirit and they prayed to the great spirit. I can't prove this, but they may have known the real God, Jehovah, Yahweh, whereas other ones were just practicing their pagan ideas about their religious practices. Is this making sense? So, so again, if we, if we go to this verse right here, people are without excuse because what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. In other words, um, all these tribes and, and indigenous people groups around the world that, that either practice human sacrifice in their worship to gods or they... They, um, they have other murderous and, and inhumane practices. You know what? Deep down, they know that's wrong. Deep down, they know it's wrong to practice human sacrifice in their pagan worship. They know that's wrong. But yet they do it anyway because they have their own man-made ideas about these deities that they're supposedly worshiping. Are you following me so far? We tracking okay? Okay. And again, Jesus promises that all those who seek him will find him. It's just like the ancient Israelites, they knew God too, but they didn't know Jesus yet. But they were looking forward, many of the, the faithful Jews were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and so they were serving the coming Messiah pre-cross, we're serving the Messiah post-cross. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, does that help on that one? All right, let's, let's keep going. So this is what I... Just a little bullet point, just a little statement here that you might consider saying to people that have that objection. I'll always swing it back around to them, remember. What about you? You have seen a Bible, and you know about Jesus and the way of salvation. So how will you respond to God's free offer of salvation so that you can escape the penalty of your sins?
We always have to bring it back around to the responsibility of the individual before God. All right, let's deal with another very common objection here this morning. And I hear this one all the time. This is a very common way of thinking in our culture today. So, so the, the objection is this. People just need to find the path that seems right to them. Being sincere about what you believe is what really matters. Really? Sincerity is the marker of truth. I hear this one is so widespread through our culture. You need to be able to address this one because you're going to hear this one all the time. Folks, listen to me. Some of the worst ideas in history have been done in the name of sincerity. History has been impacted. Nations have been impacted because of somebody's sincere ideas that were sincerely wrong. Look, sincerity does not determine truth. Write that down. Sincerity does not determine truth. A person can be sincere and still be completely wrong. A person can be sincere and still split hell wide open when they die. And be very sincere about what they believe, but sincerely and tragically wrong. See, if sincerity determines truth, then look, we have to conclude that Adolf Hitler went to heaven. Even though he was responsible for the murder of six million Jews, but he was very sincere about what he believed and proclaimed it with passion, didn't he? We would also have to conclude that many of the, the people groups throughout history that practiced pagan religions that included human sacrifice also went to heaven because they were sincere, so God must have approved them. No, you, look, again, sincerity does not determine truth. A person can be very sincere about what they believe and have very strong conviction about what they believe and be completely and tragically wrong. So then, here's another statement that you can... Uh, I don't know if I had this in your notes or not, but if not, you can take a picture of that with your phone. Is it in the notes? It is? Okay, good. So how do you know the path that you've chosen is going to save you in the end? What evidence, evidence do you have that what you believe is right? Do you remember that story that I told you, I don't know, a week or two or three ago when I was in the barber shop and that, that soldier was in the chair and he was in his fatigues and he had a full beard? Remember this? And I said, well, I, why do you have a full beard? I thought there was rules in the military against having full beards. He said, well, it's a religious exemption. And I said, really, what religion are you? And he said, I'm a pagan. And, I, and again, I thought he was joking, so I laughed, but that really is apparently a, a, a religious, a legitimate religious um, belief system now where they call themselves pagans. So I, I said, what, tell me about paganism. Um, so anyway, he talked a little bit about that, and so it, we got in a discussion right there in the barbershop with everybody listening, and, and that's essentially the question that I asked him at the end of that discussion. I said, how do you know that the path that you've chosen is going to save you in the end? What evidence do you have that what you believe is right? And you know what his answer was? He didn't have one. He didn't have one. This is just what he wants to believe because it looks attractive to him, but he has absolutely no evidence that what he believes is going to save him in the end. And what really baffles me about a lot of the discussions like that that I have with people on spiritual matters is that even people who pride themselves in being studious researchers abandon proper investigation when it comes to spiritual matters. And I've even seen that in the church, by the way, just kind of off topic here. But yeah, I've even seen that with true Christian people who love the Lord in the church when it comes to certain theological matters. Um, I've talked to people before about certain theological positions, and I'm baffled and shocked that people that believe certain things can't hold it up with the Bible. I, I had a discussion one time on a theological position with a family member of mine, and uh, we got to 
debating a little bit in a nice way and, uh, and talking. And, and she said, well, well Andy, I, I, I can't discuss these matters with you because um, you always have an answer for everything that I say. And I didn't say this to her, but I'm like, exactly. I've read the Bible. And, and, and again, I, I didn't say this, but I'm like, you can't even hold up your position. You, you haven't read the Bible enough to be able to hold up that wacky theological position of yours. And again, this is a person who loved the Lord. I know she loves the Lord. Um, but she, she has a weird theological position on something I won't bring up right now. Um, but she can't hold it up with the Bible. She's very sincere about what she believes, but she hasn't done the proper investigation and read the Bible and knows the Bible enough to be able to really validate what she believes. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, we have a Bible for a reason. God went to a lot of trouble to inspire the writing of his word through a lot of different people through a long period of time. Please take advantage of it. Okay, please take advantage of it. Know what you believe. And here's a, speaking of witnessing, you know, there's a lot of weird theological religions out there, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, one of them. Jehovah's Witnesses, on the outside looking in from a person that doesn't really know much about Jehovah's Witnesses, would think, well, they, they're a legitimate uh, Christian denomination. But, but if you look at the way that they've rewritten the Bible, it's a perversion of the Bible. Jehovah's Witness faith is a perversion of the Bible. They've written their own version of it. And so a lot of the, the things that they believe are completely heretical. But you know what I do admire about a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses? They know what they believe. They know what their version of the Bible says about it. And if you don't know what your Bible says about certain things and you get into a discussion with the Jehovah's Witness, they will turn you into a doctrinal pretzel before you can blink. And that's why they win so many, so many arguments with certain people uh, that try to share the, their, their faith with them is because most people don't own their Bible well enough. So they try to get into a discussion with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, and they can't hold up their position. You need to know your Bible. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it and be able to articulate it intelligently. Hallelujah. But back to people that don't know the Lord, I mean, just that are... Uh, bringing up objections and questions. Again, a lot of the, the basis of their objections and questions are very uninformed. I want to say that again. A lot of the basis of the objections and questions that people bring up when you're having a, a spiritual discussion with them have no basis in truth and no basis in the scriptures, and they don't even make sense half the time. So you need to be able to, to correct people lovingly, gently, but with some knowledge and intelligence. Amen? All right, so then I like this passage right here on, this is another way that you can answer people uh, that's, that say being sincere about what you believe is what really matters. Um, really? Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but in the end it leads to death. Look how high the stakes are, ladies and gentlemen. You better know what you believe and why you believe it and why it's right and not just believe something because it sounds good or feels good to you. And that's what most people are doing. They believe what they believe because it feels good to me. Oh, this, is just, this just resonates with me. And I'm just following my heart on this. Do you know how many families have been wrecked because someone followed their heart? Do you know how many lives have been ruined because someone had just, oh, I just followed my heart? You know how many people have been plunged into eternity apart from Christ because they were following their heart? There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And it's talking about eternal death, eternal destruction. That's why it's so important that we take up the mantle of evangelism and, and help people to know that don't know Christ yet, to know Christ. Now, you're not always going to, look, you're going to talk to people, family members, friends, business associates, etc. You're going to share the, your faith with, with people, and sometimes they'll tell you where to go, right? Or just think that you're, you're a wacko and just kind of dismiss you as just, 
out of touch. And you're going to get a lot of that, but you're going to plant seeds along the way. And sometimes even the fiercest opponents of the gospel that you thought, man, that person will never come to Christ. Later on, it's that very person that comes to Christ. Um, I think it was two or three weeks ago, I mentioned Nikki Cruz, who was a, a fierce gang leader of a New York City gang back in the 60s and 70s, and, um, and who was the, the pastor that began ministering to him? Thank you, David Wilkerson. Whew, man, David Wilkerson, wow, what a bold, brave believer. He went down to the mean streets of New York, sometimes by himself, to minister to these guys, and it was Nikki Cruz that grabbed him by the collar one time and stuck a, a switchblade to his throat, and he, and he said, I will cut you into a thousand pieces. And David Wilkerson said, yes, maybe, maybe so, but if you do, every piece will still say, I love you. Now, there was another young man in that same group who seemed softer to David Wilkerson's uh, proclamations of the gospel and his evangelistic efforts. And it was David Wilkerson that said later that it was that other young man, he thought, maybe I've got a chance with him. He seems more receptive. He seems softer to the gospel. But that, that Nikki Cruz guy, I don't think I'll ever get through to him. And guess what happens? Nikki Cruz that got saved. The gang leader that put, stuck a switchblade to his throat and said, I'll cut you into a thousand pieces. That's the guy that came to Christ and became a soul-winning evangelist who's still going strong today. So you never know what, what are the end results are of your efforts where people are concerned. So just keep speaking, just keep talking, just keep praying to pe for people, just keep sharing your faith. You never know what seed is going to bear fruit and sprout and grow and lead somebody to Christ. You, you may talk to 100 people and not see a single person come to Christ. Keep sharing your faith anyway because it's not even up to you who, who comes to Christ and who doesn't. You plant, somebody else comes along and waters, and somebody else is going to reap the harvest later. Okay? Amen. God's, it's, God will decide that. Praise God. All right, and now I'm going to deal with um, yet another kind of related objection. This is my last one for this morning. Um, and it's this, being a good person is what really matters. And again, that's another one that you're going to hear all the time. Um, I'm a good person. I would never hurt anyone. I don't need Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need the Bible. I'm a good person. I'll probably go to heaven someday if there is one. If, you know, if there is a God, he probably is pleased with me because I'm a good person. I would never hurt anybody. You're going to hear that all the time because people are, by nature, self-righteous. Now, I know that there's a lot of people who accuse church people of being self-righteous, but I'm telling you, look, the nature of humanity is that we are all self-righteous. We're all self-righteous because we, we like to dismiss and minimize the problematic areas that we see in our lives. We want to magnify the things that are good, and we think that God grades on a balance scale, and he's going to you know, we don't need Jesus because as long as I do more good deeds that outweigh my bad deeds, I'm going to be okay. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, the Bible teaches us that all of us have smashed God's laws into a thousand pieces and we're guilty as murderers, thieves, ad adulterers, idolaters, liars, etc. So we all are by nature, Okay. So I want to address the, the problem of self-righteousness as our last uh, little segment here this morning. And I want to quote, as we do so, um, an actor, singer, and act activist by the name of Henry Rollins. And he says this, am I self-righteous? Why not? It's not like I can count on you to be righteous for me. So, so what is he saying? He says, yeah, I'm self-righteous, but I'm okay with that because you can't be righteous for me. So I'm going to be self-righteous. That's what he's saying. All right, well, on that point, I want to give you some scriptures and also a way to, to address that issue of that being a good person is what really matters. Okay, well, you can ask this question. Well, how do you define good? What does good really look like? How do you define good? Is it you that gets to define good in God's eyes? See, and this is another statement that you can make in response to this as well. 
God does not grade on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. The Bible warns against comparing ourselves to one another. God also doesn't use balance scales to weigh our good deeds against our bad deeds. God is judging us by the standards of his holy word, the Bible. Now, once again, um, I talked about just a little bit last week about why the law, the Old Testament law is important in your gospel proclamations to people because the law is like a mirror that we use to see ourselves in truth. And you've heard me use the analogy before about uh, uh, needing readers at, at my age. And uh, sometimes I'll go into the bathroom and look at myself in the mirror without my readers on. And I'll go, huh, I don't look bad for 57 years old. And then sometimes I go into the bathroom with my readers on and look in the mirror and go, oh, gosh, who is that old guy? Right, because now, now I see myself in truth. See, without my readers, I look in the mirror and I had, see kind of a fuzzy image of myself that takes away all the lines, right? So I'm not really seeing myself in truth, but when I go in there with my readers on, now I'm seeing myself in truth. Now I see all the imperfections. And that's what the Bible does for us. The law allows us to see where we have fallen short. We have violated God's laws over and over and over again, and we're worthy of his punishment. Because we're lawbreakers. When you look in the law, see, if, if you just compare yourself to the worst center of society, you, you may have somebody at work or your school that's like, nobody likes that person because they're, they're, they're complete jerks, right? They're just, nobody likes them because they're bullies, they're jerks. You can go on and on. You can p- compare yourself to that person, that immoral person, and go, man, I'm, I'm pretty good because I, at least I'm not like that other person. But God's not grading not, like that. That's not the way God grades, God grades on his law. So you can say, for example, well, you know, at least I've never, you know, I would never hurt anybody, never killed anyone. So God must think I'm okay. But the law says, if you hate someone in your heart, you're a murderer. Jesus said that you have heard that the law says you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at someone with lust, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. So God's, just, God's not just looking at our outward appearance. He's also looking at the motives of our heart. Uh-oh. All of us need a savior. All of us need a scapegoat because we all smash God's laws into a thousand pieces repeatedly over and over and over again. We've all stiff-armed God. And if you'll pardon the expression, we've all pretty much flipped off God over and over again and said, I'm, I'm going to do it my way. I know you're the creator of the universe and all, but I got this. You know, self-righteousness, right? Let me, uh, let me continue with this thought here. Let me give you some scriptures that you might use in your addressing of this particular objection. Being a good person is what really matters. Well, Romans 3.10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. No one's righteous on your own. Your own merits don't merit God's favor. Your own, your own righteousness, your own self-righteousness does not merit God's favor. You and I have smashed God's laws into a thousand pieces so repeatedly, you, don't even, you can't even count how many times you violated God's standards. But we want to focus on the good. I'm a good person, right? Yet another issue of the, uh, regarding the law here. Uh, a, a lot of people would agree that lying is wrong, but they, you can't even count how many lies you told. And the Bible tells us that all lying tongues will be torn out and that liars will have their place in the lake of fire. Now, you might say, well, Andy, I'm, I'm not a liar, but let me ask you a question. How many lies do you have to get to before you become a liar? You get to 135, and then all of a sudden there's a scarlet letter written across your forehead. L for liar, no. The first time, the first time that you knowingly deceived someone and told a lie, in God's system, you became a liar. And me. So, can we rely on our self-righteousness to get us to heaven? Absolutely not. Not going to work. No how, no way, never has, never will. Only faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the cross to pay for your sins is what's going to get you there. So, there is no one righteous, not even one, is talking about righteous 
on our own, our self-righteousness, it's not going to be something that God accepts. There is no one righteous, not even one. And then James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Okay, let me talk about this for just a minute. Because this seems kind of unfair to a lot of people if you use this verse. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Um, Let me give you an analogy I've given you before. But if you're in a judicial system like ours and you get in a desperate situation and you've been a law-abiding citizen all of your life, but you get in a desperate financial situation and you decide to rob a a, a convenience store. You'll hold someone at gunpoint. And one thing leads to another, the situation escalates, and you shoot the attendant. And that person dies. You didn't mean to kill them, but one thing led to another. You shoot the attendant, they die. You take off, you're on the run, you get caught, now you stand before a judge, and let's say you're my age, 57 years old, so you've had 57 years of good behavior, no criminal record at all. So you stand before the judge, you say, judge, um, you know, I'd like to say something if you'll allow me. He says, sure, Um, one statement here before I pass down sentence. And you say, judge, I'd like to say that, that look, I'm 57 years old, for 57 years I've had a clean record, no criminal um, prosecutions at all. And this is a first-time offense. I was in a desperate situation. And I'm really a good person otherwise. And judge, I believe that you're a good person. And so I believe that because I believe that you're a good person and that I've lived a good, clean life up until this point, that you're going to let me off easy. And in exasperation, he would probably roll his eyes. And once he stopped laughing at you, he would probably say, well, sir... Um, you're right about one thing. I am a good man and I am a good judge. And because I'm a good man and because I'm a good judge, I'm going to see to it that justice is done and you're punished for the, to the full extent of your crimes. Is this making sense? Our judicial system is based very closely upon God's judicial system. Did you know that? See, any, any good judge is going to punish crimes whenever he resides over a situation where somebody's committed a crime, right? And God's the same way. Back to James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You become a lawbreaker, a criminal against God at that point. But God's made provision for you. Let's keep going. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You don't even know how twisted you are, in other words. You don't even know how selfish your motives are. You don't even know that even when you do something good, the selfish motives that are behind that benevolent act sometimes. We don't even know how twisted the human heart is. That's what that's saying. So therefore, our own righteousness, which is not righteousness at all, because the book of Isaiah also tells us that on our best day, on our best day of righteousness, it says, our righteousness, our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. It's like filthy rags. And pardon the graphic nature of this description of what that means, but if you read the context of what it's talking about, if, if you look at the ancient Hebrew, it's actually talking about used menstrual rags. That's what it's talking about. That's what we're referring to here. It's, it's like a, a putrid thing. Your best day of righteousness of what you can produce on your own is like, pardon me, used menstrual rags that you would discard and see as putrid. That's what God is saying. Your own righteousness on your best day cannot and will never please God apart from Christ. That's why we need a savior, a scapegoat, to take your punishment for you so that you don't have to take it, and that's been done. Praise God. Praise God. Let's keep going with this thought here. So, um, and actually, sorry, I said I had, I said that was my last one, but this, this is my last one right here. Um, I got ahead of myself. Um, But this is kind of related to the last one. So it's all kind of a continuing related thought here. All right, so this this is my last one. Um, How could a loving God send anyone to hell? 
See, because we've been talking about self-righteousness and that how your righteousness will not be able to measure up on the day of judgment. And that people that don't have their security for salvation in Jesus, but their security for salvation is in their own self-righteousness, will not make it? What's the alternative? I don't know how to candy coat that. It's hell. God didn't create hell for mankind. He created it for Lucifer and his fallen angels, but people do still go there because they've made the choice to, to do that. They've made the choice to reject Jesus, reject the Savior, reject their scapegoat, and rely on their own self-righteousness, and that's not going to get it. So you may ask the question, then how could a loving God send anyone to hell? And you'll, you'll hear that objection from time to time. Back to Adolf Hitler, I mentioned him earlier, and this is a statement that you can ask people that make that objection or ask that question. Do you believe that what Adolf Hitler did in murdering six million people deserves punishment? And most people would say, yeah, absolutely. But I've heard it said, I don't know that this is actually true or not, but it, the, the common understanding of what Adolf Hitler did when uh, he lost World War II is that he shot himself in the head and committed suicide. If that's really true, then Adolf Hitler got off scot-free and didn't pay any type of penalty at all for all the things that he did in this life. But there is punishment in the next. So then, you could ask this question as a follow-up. Is there no punishment for people who commit atrocities against humanity and are never brought to justice in this life? Will God allow that? Well, I'm going to answer that question for you, but first, I want to give you this quote by Ray Comfort, who says, Some ask the question, how could a God create hell? But one only has to watch footage of the Nazi Holocaust to come to the conclusion, if God is good, how can there not be a hell? Adolf Hitler did not slip into eternity and is now sleeping a silent sleep of death with no punishment, no recompense for what he did. If it's true that he really committed suicide before being brought to justice, then he was subjected and is being subjected right now to God's justice. Horrible thought, but that's the reality of it. So, ladies and gentlemen, there is judgment against evil because of God's goodness. Because God is a good God, there is judgment in the life to come. Let me ask you a question. Well, no, I'm going to hold that question for, for just a minute here. Before I get to that question, I'm going to give you a couple more scriptures. Isaiah 34, 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of retribution, the Bible says. Romans 1.18, this is part of our master text. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And by the way, that word that's been translated into English as wrath um, means anger, passion, punishment, and vengeance. There is a day of wrath. There, the, the wrath of God, his anger, his passion, his punishment, his vengeance is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So let me ask you a question. What would you think of a judge who turned a blind eye to human trafficking and murder? Right, he, he would be unjust. What if he knew the accused is guilty and he let him off anyway? Well, listen, you wouldn't say that that's a good judge, would you? You would most likely agree that that is a corrupt judge. Am I right? See, if that judge was truly good, he's going to punish the guilty. And since God is truly good, he's going to punish sin wherever it's found. See, but listen, but God does not want anyone to go to hell. He created hell as a dark place of residence for Lucifer and all of his fallen angels. And let me tell you something, folks. Listen, the reason that hell is a place 
of no mercy is because God isn't there. God, the reason there, that there's still some mercy on this earth is because God is still here. God's not in hell. There's no mercy in hell because God isn't there. See, you don't want to go there and you really don't want your worst enemy to go there. Sometimes we wash our hands of people and like, okay, well, they got what's coming to them. That's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God. See, God made provision for your salvation and mine through Jesus Christ. Yes, the most heinous of sinners, God made provision for. For people that have committed atrocities against humanity. People that have harmed children. People that are sex traffickers. Drug dealers. Some of the worst and most heinous people in the world. Jesus made provision for their salvation and yours and mine. So, I'm going to end with a little bit of a longer reading here out of Romans chapter 3. Because this is the provision that Jesus made for us. So that we can go free of our sins. We could go free from the punishment of our sins. I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation, which is a little bit of an easier uh, version to understand. So let's read this together. Verse 21 in Romans chapter 3. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. In other words, you don't have to dot every I and cross every T of the law in order to be saved anymore. Okay, that's the way it was before. It's not like that now. God has shown us a way to be saved, made bright with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, Jew or Gentile it's talking about. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins, praise God. Verse 25, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now, by the way, that word believe and that, that verse is the Greek word pistis, and it means to have faith and to be fully persuaded. And by implication, it means a belief that changes how one thinks and behaves. So I'm going to leave you with an analogy this morning before we pray here. Let's say that, that um, I'm going through a financial difficulty and, and uh, someone comes up to me and says, hey, not to worry, um, I got a couple of business transactions that are about to go through here. And when they do, I'm going to give you a, a large financial gift and, and help you through this situation. And if you'll just come to my house in two weeks, I'm going to give you a gift of $50,000. I'm like, okay, great. But then rather than allowing that to cause me to be at peace and, and allowing that to uh, just uh, help me to have confidence in this next two weeks, Rather than believing what that person says, I go out and I take out a loan and get myself in hock in this financial situation, even though the financial gift that my friend promised me is just two weeks away. Well, guess what? I, re I didn't really believe what he said. See, because what you believe will change what you think and how you behave. And there's so many people in our culture today that think they're on good terms with God because they've been to church a few times and they read the Bible a few times and they're a pretty good person. But if you really believe, if you've really repented, it should change some things about the way you think and about the way you behave. And if you aren't progressively growing in holiness, you may not have had an experience with the Lord at all. It's one thing to say, I believe this, but then go off and live any way you want to and behave as though you don't believe it. Well, no, you don't really believe you made an, a, ment a mental ascent. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe the Bible is the word of God. And, but really, the way that they live their lives is I'm the God of my own life. And I'll, I'll do things my own way, regardless of what the Bible says. I'm going to do things my own way. They didn't really have an experience with the Lord. When you truly have an experience with the Lord, it changes the way you think, the way you talk, the way you behave. 
Because now you want to conform your life to what the Word of God says. The, the Word of God says in Romans 12, uh, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen? So, boy, that's something that needs to be included in your gospel proclamations as well as addressing people who say they believe, but they're not really living a Christian life. They're not really desiring to please the Savior. Uh, really, they're, they're just they're hoping that this Bible is just like a little magic wand that they can wave and say, hey, Jesus, when they get to the gates of heaven, hey, Jesus, I went to church a few times, I read my Bible a few times, you're going to let me in, right? And the Bible tells us in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. That's a message right there, ladies and gentlemen, that, that American Christians need to hear. And when I say Christians, I almost say that tongue-in-cheek. I almost say that in quotation marks because there's so many people that say they're Christians that, that really, they're, no, they're nothing close to being a Christ follower. Well, I don't know why all that came up. I didn't plan on saying all that today uh, about away from me, I never knew you, but man... I'm telling you, folks, these are sober times that we live in, and that's a sober message. And the, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been so watered down and so distilled to make it palatable for everyone, even though you may be living like a pagan, that you're comfortable in your sin because your sin has never been preached against. And the truth of the gospel and what it says about you laying down your life to take up your cross to follow Jesus has never been preached in most, most churches these days. You know what? And having said that, I stand before God for what I preach to you guys. I'm going to be responsible one day for what I preach to you because God had called me to preach this right here. And how can I stand up here and not tell you the truth and just send you away with a little pat on, on the back and say, oh, you, you know, you're okay, you came to church, you're, you're okay. You're okay, even though you're living like a pagan, it's okay because at least you're sincere and you're in church once in a while. I'm going to be held accountable for what I preach. And you're going to be held accountable for what you have heard. Y'all have been coming to this church and, and most people, honestly, if they want to continue in their sin, they don't stick around here very long. They just don't because, I mean, we, we preach like this. Because I'm trying to, trying to keep you out of hell, ladies and gentlemen, and, I'm, and, and, and this whole series has is, is been designed to equip you to help other people to escape hell. Okay, I think I'm done. All right, stand up with me and let's pray if you would.